0: I'm Michael, and welcome to Beyond the Screenplay, the podcast where each week we do a conversational deep dive analysis into a film. Today, we are talking about what lies beneath the 2000 <laughs> film by or directed by Robert Zemeckis, screenplay by Clark Gregg, also known as Agent Phil Coulson. I'm joined today by the Beyond the Screenplay team, Drisha Arand,
1: Hello, everyone.
0: Brian Bittner. Hello, hello. And Alex Cayeros. Hi. So before we dive into this masterpiece, the question that we have for uh, Spotify listeners and people watching on YouTube is, what's your favorite ghost story? Let us know in the comments below. I know it's all going to be What Lies Beneath, but (laughs) let's do this exercise anyway. Uh, Okay, so we've... Hinted talked about this movie a lot over the past several episodes because it's one of those movies that I loved and Alex also loved and that we shared a strange bond over
2: <laughs> yeah. this, this 2000 film. influenced us both like
3: weirdly to like way more than it should have as directors <laughs> right.
2: very
0: strongly influenced by this.
3: That's why you guys um, shot that one movie entirely through a side view mirror, right? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I did, like, the
0: first horror, like, films that I've made were, like, just me trying to recreate this, like, back in, like, you know, college and and high school. Just, like, I gotta make What Lies Beneath and the, so inspired by this masterpiece.
2: I I think I made a film in high school that was called, like, What Lies Below. Or <laughs> It was like, I, wow. changed, I like changed one <laughs> word. And I, right. I just used the soundtrack and everything. I made yeah. one that was What Lies
0: on the Floor, and it was about a ghost cat that was fat and light on the floor. But there was also a serious
1: oh. one. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> This is all very adorable. <laughs> <laughs>
3: yeah. Forget forget about talking about this movie. We just need to dive into all this right now. <laughs> Why this movie? <laughs> Why did it
2: capture our young minds?
1: Yeah. Let's get I mean, into it.
2: Let's get into it. So, uh,
0: yeah. So we've already clearly given a, an impression of you know when we saw. It. I think I I don't think I saw it in theaters, but I my parents and I for a brief period in like middle school, high school when I was old enough to watch cool movies, but like st- still uh, young enough to not have like friends and things to do on Saturday nights, we would do Saturday night movie nights. And I'm pretty sure this was one of them. And I remember like sitting down with the popcorn and watching it and just being like, oh my God, this is amazing. Um, so yeah, I saw it. I don't think when it came out, but shortly after and then watched it over and over again, Alex, I assume the
2: case is similar for you. Did you see it in theaters? Do you um, know? I don't think I saw it in theaters, but I think I did see it You know, I had the blockbuster experience. I rented it and fell in love. Um, Yes. So, so yeah, I I remember seeing this movie and and I think, you know, I was at that impressionable young, like, you know, 13 year old range where the idea, like a movie that has a twist like this was still like incredibly mind blowing (laughs) and how the movie could kind of seem to end. But then, oh my God, no, it's like just getting started this third act. Um, And then all, all the Hitchcock of the film it was almost like i was introduced to hitchcock before i saw a lot of hitchcock (laughs) like i might i may have seen like psycho Mm -hmm. but this movie is has so many homages to that hitchcock kind of paranoid Mm
1: -hmm. thriller
2: you know rear window psycho there's so much in here and so in in a strange way it was like i got introduced to that those genre tropes that hitchcock originated through like the homage to Hitchcock movie, uh, mm-hmm. which is interesting. But but definitely there is there is a lineage there of that kind of Hitchcock sensibility that I really gravitated towards and I got so into. And and I think there's also something strangely, uh, you know, my parents have a much happier marriage than these. Two people, <laughs> but like my dad's a professor and he's like always working on his laptop, and my uh, mom kind of you know to, kind of could be a busybody sometimes and trying to keep herself busy. And so there's there's a weird also parallel of like these kind of seem like my parents and like <laughs> strange parallels there that it maybe kind of resonated. <laughs> so so anyway, all of that added up to just yeah. For some reason, this movie really struck a chord with me, and I think because it has a lot of clever. Filmmakery, you know, Robert Zemeckis type things in it. Interesting use of visual effects. You know, lots of oners. um Mm-hmm-hmm. I think I just was really into all of that at that age, and and just got excited to watch it and rewatch it and notice all these filmmaking techniques throughout the movie. Yeah, one hundred percent
0: the yeah. same. Okay, so <laughs> yeah. for the non-US people, right. so so Trisha, <laughs> You watched this during your Harrison Fordathon, is that I, accurate? Yes,
1: I used this. This is the finale. What was the finale okay. of my Harrison Fordathon? The
0: grand finale. It yeah.
1: was. Um, and but, so I am a big Zemeckis fan. Actually, I mean, who wouldn't be? Back to the Future, some of the greatest uh, films, pretty much ever. Um, and then he's done a bunch of others that I I really really like. Um so like Castaway is another one that I love. Contact I adore. Like uh-huh. he just he's a really fascinating filmmaker. Um and so I had a compilation CD of Sylvester scores. Mm-hmm. Uh, because uh Sylvester has done a, a bunch of Zemeckis films. Uh scored a, scored quite a few of them. And so I had this compilation CD and I would just listen to it from start to finish and it starts off with um Romancing the Stone which is great and it goes all the way through castaway which was right after this one um and so you know i think it had like 10 tracks on it it's got like 10 10 movies and so the what lies beneath score like like the main titles i guess of what lies beneath were like the second to last track on the cd that i had and I'd seen all the others. Like, Death Becomes Her is also another really interesting Zemeckis yeah, film. Yeah,
3: I watched that last October, and it Oh, it's it holds so up. good.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, if you haven't seen Death Becomes Her, definitely check that out. Like, Meryl Streep at the, like, greatest. Yeah. Um, <laughs> anyway. But I'd seen, like, every other single, like, Zemeckis-Sylvestri collab because of that CD. And I had avoided this one because I was so sure it was going to terrify me. And... Watched it at the end of my Harrison Ford marathon and it was a very unpleasant experience because it did scare me because there are a ton of jump scares in this movie mm-hmm. and they're like definitely all executed in the like cheapest, jump scariest way possible. <laughs> yeah. Like yep. half the time it's just something dumb that's like, like uh, It's like she's going to like run up to the, she's going to run up to the fence and be like. Someone's looking right back on the other side through the fence, and like, yeah, the dog is there. So many times, it's just a dog. Um, anyway, so it did really scare me the first time I watched it, but then I rewatched it for, in advance of this podcast, knowing where everything is and like what happens, and knowing the whole thing. And it was just such a fun movie to rewatch and appreciate on so many levels. It's also, um, how can I put this politely?
2: <laughs> perhaps
1: not the landmark film that it has established itself in your brains to be um, it, i felt there, that way I as there, well revisiting it i think there are a lot of lessons we can extract from here both do's and don'ts and so yes. i'm excited to get into the whole thing and unpack it all with you guys
0: excellent yeah Awesome. Okay. And so, Brian, had you seen it before we did this to you?
3: Oh, yeah. I <laughs> okay. saw it back, uh, you know, 20 years ago when it came out. And okay. the impression it made on me was not strong one way or the other.
1: Yep. Feel like that's yeah, a let's lot talk of about the movie. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, I
3: yeah. I thought it was fine. Like, I, I had no. Again, I enjoyed it for what it was, and then never really thought about it much in twenty years. Um, but I, I really did have a uh, a blast rewatching it. It's like I was looking it up, and like, oh yeah, it's forty seven percent Rotten Tomatoes. Just like yeah. bad reviews. <laughs> and like, yeah, because I don't care. This is not a movie that I need to be good. It's just, it's, yeah. it's just a, a yeah. blast to watch, and I had a really good time revisiting it. So, so thank you. Excellent, yeah, yeah. I mean, so
0: like you said, Trisha, let's dive into it. I think there. So the the Robert Zemeckisness of it is, I think, one of the things that I still really enjoy about it. And mm-hmm. I, we I mentioned this in one of our recent episodes. That there was this period of time around you know the turn of the century where we were realizing that visual effects could do things, and so so much of the you know mission statement behind this movie, as you were saying, Alex, was let's do things that Hitchcock would have done if he had digital technology. Uh, and some of them are more successful than others, but I find all of them really interesting. So like there are there's the, the crazy, the one that blew my mind is toward the end of the film, when Michelle Pfeiffer's she's on the ground, she's been paralyzed
2: by the, the mm-hmm. magic paralyzing
0: juice <laughs> <Substance>. <laughs> that he's Which
2: been is working on. Set up in a very precise way oh in an God. earlier yes. moment of exposition. <laughs> Can yeah. it work on all mammals? Oh yes. Right. <laughs> definitely I thought of you, Trisha,
0: as like hang a lantern. That's what it looks like when you hang a lantern on yeah. a thing. Very, Very cool. time. Let's no how go long back to the last? exposition.
1: I have yeah. lots of I have lots of thoughts on the exposition Excellent. in this movie.
0: <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, but anyway, so she's there and you know, her husband then comes and leans over and says the thing, and the camera moves forward like mm-hmm. along the floor and then goes beneath the floor, and you're right. looking at her from beneath the floor. And it's just like, wait, what? Like, how could you possibly do that? This is the year 2000. I don't understand. Uh, Or then later when she's running out of the house, she runs out, gets into the car, the camera starts from a wide shot outside of the car, moves then inside of the car and then Mm. down below the steering wheel. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, in both of those situations, it's, you know, for the car... They had to just kind of create a little rig for her to sit in. And then the car is CG and disappears. And same thing with, you know, they had to build the set such that you could have a glass floor and then add a CG wooden floor there. So the camera can go underneath the glass just in time. So there's all these like tools being used in this way kind of for the first time. And it it does feel a little bit like it does make me... I don't know. The the mission statement of what would Hitchcock have done if he had those tools? I get a little bit of that, you know, wonder or the, oh, yeah, like, there are these new possibilities. And this might be what, you know, who knows what he would have done. But it's cool to see a movie that just goes for it and comes up mm-hmm. with these crazy shots that's playing in this kind of melodrama horror place and it feels right. it feels right for this kind of story yeah yeah
3: yeah it's it's funny because it's this cross-section of you've got Shyamalan just showing up and you're mm-hmm. like is he the new Hitchcock no and um <laughs> then you have like these the Ring and The Others, which are these like, oh, it's kind of a ghost drama. It's like, it's sort of, you know, this movie is kind of a thriller first and a horror movie second, right? And in, in the same way, um, The Others is kind of a drama first and a horror movie second. Um, and then you have the CG stuff you're talking about, like what Fincher was doing in Fight Club and Panic Room, which are on either side of this movie. Uh, and a lot of people were doing, you know, which then a few years later, we get Children of Men where <laughs> Coron's like, Wait, this is how you actually do this stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, this movie is kind of the perfect venue for that weird CG stuff because I feel like in a in a better movie you would be kind of annoyed by it; it would feel cheap. But in this movie, it's like, yeah, why not go beneath the floor? Let's <laughs> let's do it. Right. There's overall just a fun B movie quality about what
2: lies beneath, and part mm-hmm. of it I think may have come from the fact that it was shot during hiatus for Castaway. Uh, yeah. It was actually shot while they were waiting for Tom Hanks to lose weight, and. um And so I I think there's probably kind of a freedom that comes where it's like, I'm just going to squeeze a movie in here and just, and like have a ball. And I'm going to do all these crazy CG Hitchcock shots that I've always dreamed of. And why the hell not? (laughs) Mm -hmm. And that's part of what I think is still really um, charming about this film is that it just, it does have that B movie freedom to not try to be, it's not going for an Oscar. It's, it's, it's just having fun.
1: Well, and One of the things I really like about Zemeckis, especially in the 80s and 90s, is the performances that he gets out of people. And the performances from Harrison Ford and Michelle Pfeiffer are really interesting and and cool and fun here. Like, Mm -hmm. this is not your normal Harrison Ford kind of a role. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I talked about how Harrison Ford, like, in his action roles, often is doing very little on his face. And actually, he kind of gets big and, like kind of out there and really um aggressive in his acting where he's normally you know more like held back I think in this movie and you know it's it's pretty clear to me that like Michelle Pfeiffer too is like just working as hard as she possibly can to sell all of this yeah. and in the hands of in the hands of lesser actors it doesn't work at all right like I think that they're part of the reason that it's it's you know kind of like you're saying it's a melodrama but it's compelling in so many ways Mm -hmm. like michelle pfeiffer has to do that insane scene where she's like possessed by the
2: ghost
1: (laughs) (laughs) and she's like seducing him and i'm just like this is a bad scene in any other movie and in this movie it's not a great one but michelle pfeiffer is but it rocks
2: but like, but I am loving it while it's happening. Yeah. No, of
1: course. Yeah, it's it's almost yeah like this campy B movie thing, but like they've got enough gravity to their performances. And Zemeckis was a master of tone, you know, in that way. Like, again, watch Death Becomes Her if you want to know what like a really like tone tightrope is. And Zemeckis can really walk it. There's always this like sort of layer of like just splashy moviness underneath of everything mm-hmm. and you know back to the future is sort of like the most distilled in terms of like this is just a splashy movie and it's just movie all the time and the rest of his other movies though do a more blending of different genre things and he's always able to get these great performances uh especially in the 80s and 90s i admit to having missed a few of his more recent films in the 21st century <clears throat> the ones that are um Animated. Just mocap, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh the, the entire movies um but yeah, especially in the eighties and nineties, he gets some great performances out of his his leading folk, and and uh, these are two really good ones.
3: Yeah, Death Becomes Her is funny because it it knows it's a comedy that's never not trying to be a comedy, but it's Meryl Streep and Goldie Hawn and Bruce mm-hmm. Willis and Isabella Rossellini, so it's like actors who can can give you a performance that doesn't feel like the actors know they're in a comedy, which is exactly the, the, always the funniest, you know, performance. Um, But What Lies Beneath is this weird middle ground where it's like, you kind of need to handle it like a real serious movie and you kind of need your actors to really be giving the serious performances, which then buys you some amount of silliness, maybe not quite this much, but it buys you some. And Michelle Pfeiffer, I think was one of the first, I would say net Benning was one of the first like female actors where I was like, Oh, you're my favorite. You, I've actually seen you in enough stuff and you're like awesome all the time, which weirdly in the, like back then I was just like, Oh, all my favorite actors happen to be men. And now I don't think any of them. Are. <laughs> like, I think like if like, yeah. I could think of my top 10 actors, like none of them are men, nothing against them, but just like weirdly it like switched to where I'm like Olivia Colman and, you know, all these people. And back then it was like all the Johnny Depp and Brad Pitt and Michelle Pfeiffer. I was like, yes, you, I see you.
2: <laughs> yeah. Well, she's so striking. And it's interesting yeah. how this movie draws attention to her eyes because yes. of that. But of you course. Know, eye, the eye change in that one scene. But, you know, her her normal eyes are so interesting and they've they had that kind of almost like gray faded quality to them that yeah. gives her this like really just captivating presence. And so you can really, you know, this movie is just mostly her like walking around a house, <laughs> but yeah, but it's, but it's like interesting enough to watch her do that, which is mm-hmm. once again, it's a lot of responsibility to put on an actress to say, Hey, we're going to have you just walking around. The doors are going to open and a picture's going to fall over and we're just going to look at your face during all that and it's got to be interesting
1: well to your point alex i was thinking about you know this seems like a really simple world for a story um but it's rendered with such clarity right where it's like the the world of the story is really contained but in sort of a hitchcockian way you have to go into every single corner of this house you have to go into every single like relationship within the, you know, so there's the supporting cast of characters, and you kind of have to dive into each one of those relationships and like the university and the sort of like small New England townness of it all and the lake that's right there. Um because the world of the story is so small, it has to be just yeah, really sharp and we need to understand its boundaries sort of and rules really clearly. And that also is what gives Michelle Pfeiffer's character um I want to say dimensionality, but I guess what I really mean is, um, yeah, I don't know, like sort of the depth of her. We sort of understand how she feels because of how contained the world is around her um, Mm. in the way that a lot of really great Hitchcock movies do. And so, you know, watching her walk around in the house, especially at the beginning, first of all, she's just like, you know has there ever been somebody to play a bitch better than Michelle Pfeiffer? Like, she's just like the bitchiest all the time, sort of right beneath the surface. And so, you know, for like a New England, rich New England housewife, She's like, there's nobody better with a better look than Michelle Pfeiffer and her composure and everything. She just looks like she just looks expensive and well-kept all the time. Um, <laughs> it's fantastic. I just saw Scarface recently. I talked about it on the podcast and that's yeah. like early Michelle Pfeiffer, but like expensive and well-kept and a total bitch. She's just the best. <laughs> um,
2: Is she a total but, bitch in this movie? She seems no, no, like. No, no, but like.
1: <laughs> I I guess what I just mean is like, you know, sort of like a a spoiled rich woman kind of thing. I mean, like that that
2: enormous house on that lake. And yeah, she's so you know pristine and perfect right. at all times and yeah.
1: the costume design is impeccable too where she's always just like in her blouses and slacks and whatever yeah. and her hair is just kind of <laughs> until she's in a her twist. red dress
3: <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but
1: yeah but we, we we feel the desperation from her because we understand the world really clearly and the movie does a really good job of bounding it and she's always cutting herself on roses you know it's just <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> it, it all fits into this really great package of world building and the central character they feel intimately connected to each other. This woman exists in this world. This world exists as an extension of this character. And and those things are are just intimately intertwined and just completely clear the minute we see them on screen.
3: Totally. Plus, this movie does an interesting thing where we're always in her POV, Um, Mm. which which raises the question did she actually, did that picture actually fall? Did mm-hmm. she actually see that thing that she saw, you know? And, and the movie never really draws it, calls that into question too much, but it is playing a little bit with like, oh, you're feeling, you're feeling stressed since the accident and you know, you da da da. So it, it kind of, by keeping it in her POV, it always is raising that question of like, oh, is this an unreliable narrator story or is this a story about somebody who actually is seeing these things? And that sort of keeps that mystery open a little bit. Again, which involves a lot of her just in a house by herself walking around. Yeah, yeah. In an interesting way. There's a lot of you know Hitchcock
2: character psychology in this movie where it's about Ooh. it's like Empty Nest, the movie. You know, if, <laughs> yeah. if, if you're if you're this you know lead character that kind of has an underlying anxiety or there's something fishy with your marriage that has kind of been put off dealing with because you're focusing on your child, the child is gone now. And now there's this, the anxiety is rising to the surface. And what do you do with yourself now that all you're left with, with your husband, who's kind of maybe not a good guy actually, and has these flare ups of anger that are kind of scary uh, at moments. Uh, and, and so I think there's just a lot of like dealing with this suburban anxiety, this empty nest anxiety and in it, and the first half of the movie before kind of ghost stuff is all but confirmed uh there is that open question of right. is this a woman just kind of driving herself mad because of the empty nest marriage mm-hmm. falling apart maybe stuff going on
1: yeah and i like that it's that big red herring with the neighbors too right. Right? right like there's fully half the movie basically where you're sure that she is on to like a rear window kind of murder thing
3: this is the funny thing though is Yes, obviously, Rear Window so much, but between Rear Window and this movie was The Burbs, the the brilliant Tom Hanks star of Castaway mm-hmm. uh, movie, <laughs> um, where he sees his neighbors like you know drawing, pulling a garbage bag out to the to the the trash, and like what's going? Why is he digging a hole in the middle of the night? And the 1994 episode of The Simpsons, Bart of Darkness which is very much inspired by Rear Window. But again, it's two suburban houses next to each other. Bart is watching, he breaks his leg and he has a telescope. He's watching Flanders and Flanders like yells about something and he says, oh no, I'm a murderer. And then Bart sees him dragging a bag out and all this kind of stuff. So now I'm watching What Lies Beneath going, well, yeah, you're doing a Rear Window thing, but you also seem to be referencing these two comedies from like the early 90s. And that's a weird kind of thing. So it's like there's this whole litany of, Rear window, but sure. suburban neighborhood uh, movies in in this decade for some reason, which, which I guess mm-hmm. makes sense for
2: the '90s. You know, it's, it's sure it, it's, we're we're in the like peak suburbia at that moment, so right? No, we we're, we're just transplanting everything there, mm. and I feel like that's why
0: it's good to watch this when you're 13 or 14 and haven't seen <laughs> other movies, right? <laughs> so exactly, <laughs> fresh and new. <laughs> But yeah, it, it was I was struck by how domestic of a a movie it was while still being horror. And I was thinking about, you know, the ring, and the ring is, you know, focused on a, a family and like Rachel and the son. And so it's kind of, you know, in a similar ballpark of, you know, like we talked about like a drama horror thing. But this is like super domestic, like you're mm-hmm. saying, Alex, the like nest syndrome. And um it was cool. I'd forgotten how many twists there were and how many red herrings there were. So yeah, there's the neighbor, but there's also for a while, you think that maybe you know, you're know you worried about Norman, but then he seems to be on her side and he has that moment where like, yes, I believe you. And so there's a moment where it's like, oh, maybe he's like, okay too. And they're, they're together, they're gonna fight the ghost. They're like all these little things that are fun that maybe don't make any sense. Um, but like provide a lot of really cool twists and turns. The biggest question for me is like like she has amnesia kind of about a, like a horrific accident that she was in and seeing her husband cheating hard, but she just completely forgot about it.
2: Trisha has thoughts. Trisha's face
1: <laughs> okay, the backstory of this movie is insane. It is way too complicated. It is an example of how not to do backstory ever. Like, it's just so hard to parse and follow, and like it ends up being somewhat of consequence, but it's also even more complicated than it really needs to be. So, okay, thing number one is, if you have a character that was in some kind of accident, where they were injured, and they have lasting damage, physical, psychological, I don't care. Put a scar on their face. You have to do something. You have to like put their arm in a sling. You have to put a bandage on their head. You have to like (laughs) put a surgical scar somewhere visible where I can see it, where I'm constantly reminded, oh yeah, that person was in an accident and that is currently still affecting them. You cannot show a picture in an a photo album For with like a, a damaged car and then just like a <laughs> handwritten note of a year, but I don't even know what year this movie is supposed to be taking place. I right. don't know how long ago it was. <laughs> like, wow.
2: I, yeah, that photo book scene, watching it again, I was like, this, they're leaning on this one, like flipping through a photo book to do work about so many different like plot yes. threads. Mm-hmm. Like, yes. this stuff about her music, about her like previous marriage. And, her and when first she. <laughs> We get a baby, like, and also here's a car wreck, and also, the, like, and Norman's father. Getting, yeah. yeah,
1: Norman's dad is dead too, by the way. <laughs> right. Okay. Yeah. Again, there's, it's more complicated than it needs to be. Right. So, like, in my opinion, the only backstory that we actually need for this movie, if you want to keep everything else in the plot the same, is that she was in a car accident and had a head injury and doesn't remember some things. Um, The rest of it, first husband get him out of here he's useless that's <laughs> like just have her married to norman the whole time it's way too complicated that he's not caitlin's actual father there's no reason for him not to be caitlin's actual father i guess except it's like if and, he it was... makes him more
2: threatening at the end in some sure. ways you know like, that really yeah. creepy line he says to her he's in the like, bathtub. gonna get
1: close to caitlin <laughs> yeah. yeah after she and dies. it maybe
2: like buys
0: you a little bit of like you know, would he be so evil him. if
1: he was really, yeah,
0: right? Like, you know, he has that monologue of like, I, I swooped in and saved you, and blah blah blah. There's like a little bit of like, oh, okay.
1: So complicated. Norman's father, get him out of here. He doesn't belong in this story at all. Like, her music, no. <laughs> she does, She was never a musician. Stop it. Like, all of this stuff is so complicated and hard for us to keep track of. And so little of it ends up being of consequence in any way. Right. And the problem, one of the problems that it, it causes is that, A, we don't know what's important in the backstory and what's not. So we spend a lot of unnecessary time in our brains trying to sort out the timeline and figure out the details, which is a distraction from the main plot, which is what we need to be following. But another big problem with it is that it, it forces you into the clunkiest kinds of exposition yeah. possible, which is what I was saying about like put a scar on her forehead or something where instead of having her best friend go, well, you wrapped your car around a telephone pole going 80 miles an hour. Anyway, your daughter just left for college. You're extremely close to her, remember?
3: Like, <laughs> give me, give me, give me. look at my car. Da, 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 let's get some drinks. Like, just the weirdest character. I love that character. <laughs>
1: That scene is the most unforgivable one in the movie, though. When she comes over and she's like, by the way, I told my psychic about you. And she's like, you told your psychic about me. She's like, she gave me this mushroom tea for you. and uh, There's so much about that scene with the exposition. It's so clunky, but you have to do that when you tie unnecessary knots in your backstory. And so, like, this is a great example of some things need to be streamlined here, and you probably need to hang a lantern a lot earlier on the fact that she can't remember some things. And also, I kept right. expecting the reveal that he's the one who caused the accident, right? Like, sh- surely she found out something, and that's why she was in an accident. But the movie doesn't, like, about the affair, right? And that's, like, mm-hmm. why she right. wrapped her car around a telephone pole. But I feel right. like the movie never really I think that's implied. that. Like, Is like that implied?
2: She, she says, like, I saw you there, and then I drove the car. Like, right. It, but but like it is once. this
0: weird thing yeah. where they like they imply it and they walk right up to like saying that officially, but then never do quite. Right. So, so there is a little weird hanging like, I, I mean, I, I'm pretty sure that's what happened. But the movie didn't like confirm, confirm that. And the timeline of when all. <laughs> of, yeah, yeah.
2: Yeah. I would say in King. Clark Gregg's defense, uh, <laughs> lovely Clark Gregg, uh, I do. I, I think there's good intention behind the overly convoluted backstory. Like I I I do think it's an interesting character trait for Harrison Ford's character who has a lot of ego, who's who really cares about his image and his work, to be in the shadow of his father who everybody knows and nobody knows him. I think it's interesting that part of what's, you know, beneath the surface, under the surface of their marriage is this kind of, uh, you know, problem. Uh, th- there's, there's that like resentment that can stew over time where it's sure. like I had, a, I, I was on a path and then I met you and I went on a different path and it worked for you, but maybe now I regret that path. And so all these elements, I understand why they're there and they make the characters interesting, but I do agree that the the movie seems to point to all of them equally as all being like equally relevant and, and to the mystery. As, and as right. you're trying to mm-hmm. solve this mystery, it gets really confusing. It's like, oh, is the music a thing? Like, is that going to come back? And <laughs> no, nope. it's like, no, right. like she, she plays the cello in the scene because she wants to take it up again. But that's about it. Um, so, yeah, I, I think it in, in a movie where you as the audience are trying to uh, solve a mystery, having this many random backstory things does not help, um, even if they're well intentioned. Yeah. yeah, like I think they're there to give characters motivation, which is good.
0: But yeah, as, as you were saying, it need to be streamlined or uh, built into things in a more organic way and given the proper weight.
1: Yeah, or weighted correctly need. in order of importance, which to me, the memory loss is number one important thing and needs right. to be front loaded and just given to us visually within the first instant of seeing her. That would be very helpful because
2: otherwise it feels cheap. Where it's like right. it, exactly out of right. nowhere we've invented this new mechanic. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I feel like there are.
0: I so I want to talk about the the bathtub scene at mm-hmm. some point because, like, that's you know where this all Must. all leads to. And but part of it uh, that I think was fun watching it back then. And that I think they talk about even in like the behind the scenes making of was that Harrison Ford had kind of never played a bad guy before, Mm -hmm. like never been like the evil one. And at that point had never died on screen, I think. So it was like there was a lot of meta fun of like we're casting Harrison Ford because, of course, he's going to be like the loving husband that everyone roots for. But he gets to play a bad guy. Uh, And it, it was weird. I feel like I like him through most of the movie but once he goes into full evil and monologuing about my plan and like how hard it was to strangle the life out of that girl it it stops working for me and i was wondering if you guys had that also cuz i agree with what you were saying earlier Trisha where a lot of i think a lot of his performance in this movie is really great and feels like one of the better Harrison Ford performances and there's you can see there's a lot going on in there but by the end it's like two dimensional evil Like, I'm going to be so sad when you die, but it'll bring me and your daughter together. Oh, hey, Cooper, here's, let's go play with the ball. Like, he's a little too, (laughs) like, I am evil bad guy now.
3: I have a few thoughts, one of which is my good friend, Paul, who listens to this podcast, so he may be listening. Hi, Paul, I love you. He was like, a huge Star Wars fan still is. And he was like, I didn't like What Lies Beneath because Harrison Ford plays a bad guy and I was like first of all <laughs> thanks for spoiling the movie second of all <laughs> what a weird like what a weird like reason to not like the movie just yeah, because yeah. of the casting choice you know and of course this was when we were in our early 20s or something um but uh but yeah I mean obviously and that is you know, that is part of the point sometimes is you want to cast the person that people don't suspect. You know, you don't cast Jack Nicholson in The Shining, because everyone's like, well, of course he's gonna murder everyone. Right. Um but uh the other thing I really like is the sort of up until he gets to that that turning point that you're talking about, Michael, it's the sort of I'm gonna admit just enough. Yeah. To sort, you know, and that's like yeah. such a classic Gaslighty type trick, yeah. but I think it actually works pretty well here. Um, there's that, like, that one where he walks down the first time he's admitting things and the camera kind of follows him and makes like this other cool shot. Um, but he's constantly going, Okay, yes, I lied to you about this one little thing. I'm sorry. Um, but I, you know, that was it. Right. And then five minutes later, but wait, what about this? Yeah. yeah I mean, there's the reason I didn't tell you about that thing. Da, da, da. And then, as you're talking about, Michael, then it turns into like, I am the killer, you know? And, and by that point I didn't care <laughs> like, whatever. Yeah, so, yeah so I, you... I enjoy it. <laughs> yeah.
1: Well, the movie does a really good job of, you know, again, with this is a, a tribute to the POV in keeping us with her and in her head, is that his reactions are often really unpredictable and there's enough good and appropriate ones to counteract the ones that are off-putting and surprising. So mm-hmm. when we first meet his character, he's like, you know, kissing her. And he's like, uh, you know, I love you so much. And she's like, no, then my, our daughter's awake. And he's like, we'll be quiet. And like, you know, they, they clearly are like still have really strong, like there's like a lot of passion and romance in their marriage. And, you know, we get that sort of back and forth where he's after they take Caitlin to college, he like, you know, leads her off down the hall and puts an arm around her. He's really sweet with her. And all of this stuff. And then there are those moments where he is like, why are you trying to ruin my work? Like, why are you, mm-hmm. you know, making this about you? Um, And like inventing this ghost thing that's happening. And, you know, he's centering it all on himself and his work. And it's, that's a moment in the movie where I'm like, I don't like you. And and there's, there's a, you know, we're so with her that we want nothing but sympathy and understanding and support and it flips back and forth where he does give understanding, sympathy, support time and time again. And then also there are these moments where she goes to him and he is so cold and so awful to her that we see the, you know, the bumps in their marriage and the like simmering resentments in their marriage. And so in that sense, as like a domestic sort of drama or like a, uh, portrait of a relationship it's actually really well done mm-hmm. um and it keeps us guessing about whether or not he is the bad guy right so like you're pointing out that moment of like yes i believe you you know and they they burn the hair of the ghost because <laughs> he read about
2: exorcism and like took notes there's a on lot a notepad. of odd
1: like book things oh i love his mm-hmm. notes
2: he's like <laughs> like underlining <"Fire>? it. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Destroy with fire <laughs> uh so great but yeah um it's it is just like you have to keep us guessing you can't tip your hand too early which means you have to sell us on he is a loving husband there's Mm. a reason why she's still here so yeah it's in the performance but it's in it's in the writing of the character too
2: and i do think yeah they're they're performances in their relationship on screen is getting at another domestic psychological thing, yep. which is, do you really know your partner? Exactly. And, and, you know, are they actually the person you think they are? And I I do love when he is being just super villain at the end. Just you, all you can see is Michelle Pfeiffer's eyes just above mm-hmm. the water. And just the way she's looking at him. I think it is it is a great, you know, domestic thriller moment of Oh God, you are a sociopath actually. Yeah. Like it's not just that you like screwed up and did something bad once and you've been trying to cover it up. You're actually a sociopath and I mm-hmm. didn't realize that this whole time and now I'm gonna die. <laughs> and, and that is, you know, even if it it is cheesy. I, I, I like that moment and I like that payoff. It's like the ultimate if you're gonna take a you know a premise and take it all the way, like it's not just that you don't know your husband and didn't know about his affair he's actually a sociopath and he's <laughs> like really bad
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah 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 this episode is brought to you by mubi a curated streaming service showing exceptional films from around the globe every day mubi premieres a new film from brand new work by emerging filmmakers to modern masterpieces from today's greatest icons there is always something new to discover with Mubi, each and every film is hand-selected. It's like your own personal film festival, streaming anytime, anywhere. To try Movie free for 30 days, simply click on the link in the show notes, or if you're watching on YouTube, click the pop-up in the top right of the screen. Or simply head to Mubi.com slash beyond the screenplay. That's m-u-b-i.com/beyondthescreenplay beyond the screenplay for a whole month of great cinema for free thanks to movie for sponsoring beyond the screenplay yeah well and so so we're here at the bathtub i was going to say yeah. is it time yeah well and so so i was obsessed with the bathtub scene and like i did with psycho would watch the bathtub scene like frame by frame and wow. look at how you know there's the shot where he comes and puts her into the bathtub is shot from so high above that obviously mm-hmm. it was on a set But young Michael was like still figuring out that that was a thing that they did of like, oh, that must have been somewhere where they could get a crane. high So like they must have (laughs) built a set. They don't just shoot things in real places like all that stuff. Uh, And there's just so many little moments in in that scene as far as how it's shot where, you know, there's a when Harrison Ford is kind of like saying goodbye and has that moment of like oh i'm so sad like look at you i'm gonna lean in and kiss you the shot starts from michelle fiver's pov and he's basically looking at the camera and the camera's kind of in the bathtub and then he leans forward and the camera somehow slides out of the way to then reveal her so that he can kiss her it's like it's a small thing that doesn't draw any attention to itself but it's the kind of shot that's really difficult to pull off and he didn't have to do it that way but it's Mm -hmm. again putting us in her perspective there's shots where it's like shot from below the bathtub because it's a clear bath like there's all these little things that don't take you out of it but are just done in this extra little kind of unnecessarily complicated way that make that sequence really fun Mm -hmm. I will say revisiting it it wasn't as tense as I remembered it to be but I still really enjoyed uh, the ride that it takes you on. So,
2: I mean, I yeah. I'll say revisiting it. I I was impressed by how well it held up for me. Just I think it does. It it pushes that situation as far as you want to go before you know you need to like resolve it. And I, I I I think just the the pacing and the the different stages of what goes down it doesn't overstay its welcome, but it does push you to that place of, oh God, I think she's screwed. You know, like a couple different times in a couple different ways. And so I I think it's just a really, I think it's still worth studying as just a good example of like, you want to do like a shower scene, an equivalent kind of stressful, domestic, I'm going to die situation. This scene, I think, has has enough... twists and turns and stages to it but doesn't overstay its welcome and is completely believable as well like the way she gets out of it is believable and doesn't break the rules of the story to kind of
3: cheat her situation Mm -hmm. to be a result yeah i i didn't remember it existed so it wasn't about like oh is the scene going to be as good as i remember it was just like oh okay i don't even remember the scene exists so it was it was a lot of fun um and i think that yeah there is something to be said about the simplicity at least the the initial premise of the scene, the simplicity of like a character really needs to achieve a goal and they can't because of some obstacle, you know, I mean, it, this is obviously just like one Ready one, right? But like, but just like a character who can barely move or has to crawl to like hit it, do a thing or whatever. Um, And then not only are they trying to do it and they can't do it but there is a ticking clock about if they don't do it within this amount of time you know again it it when i when i say it like that it feels like the most obvious stuff but this scene is just is like a really good example of how you do that in a way that really builds that tension and then really uh you know just just makes you totally immersed uh, on what's happening
1: and the sequence itself Um, has a lot has like these mini reversals in it as well Mm -hmm. where it's you're pointing out Alex that it's like it doesn't just continually get worse there are these moments where it gets better for her where you think she's going to get out of it or like that the key like it's it's on the way to being resolved and then something else takes it two steps back right and so you know the moment that's actually one of the scariest to me is not the cheap scare where he puts her head back and it's the dead ghost face woman
2: that is is kind of a great moment though because you do have like the ghost is also like an actor here (laughs) like it's not just the two of them versus each other the ghost is also kind of influencing things present and and, and
1: i want to get back to that but But there is that moment where then he falls, he hits his head and we've got the bloody handprint on the side of the thing. And just again, with perspective and POV, because she can't see where he is, we can't see where he is. Right. And it mm-hmm. creates that unknown factor of, like, the danger is still here, presumably. So, like, even if she gets the water turned off or even if she gets the plug pulled out, that's not immediately, like, she's going to be saved. And so it's a really interesting twist in the middle of the scene that kind of complicates the whole goal of it, which is really smart and cool.
0: Right, right. You're talking about when she's finally, like, like- not going to drown, and then looks over to, like, check on him, and he's gone. Yeah. That is, is, yeah, that is a very scary moment because, like you're saying, the danger is still here somewhere, and I don't know where, and now I'm just, like, things just got worse. The mirror shard is
2: my only hope. (laughs) (laughs) Right.
1: (laughs) Well, but the other thing about this, the whole bathtub sequence, is that the context around it is what makes it even more tense, because it's interesting in the shower scene, in psycho, we have no reason to suspect that the bathroom is dangerous. Right. So it's just pure shock factor. It's not suspense, right? It's mm-hmm. not that it's horror, but it's not the creeping suspense thrillery thing because there's no context around it that tells us we should be scared until we see the door open uh, in the you know upper left part of the frame in in psycho. Right. And so the thing that makes what lies beneath really scary, is that from the very first scene of the movie, which is in the bathroom.
2: <laughs> Why is um, she gasping and like drowning in the bathtub yeah, at like, the beginning? Yeah, you
1: were asleep? Like, <laughs> <Yeah>. have, <laughs> have questions. Uh, but again, every single time we're in that bathroom, it is signaled to us that this is where the danger is. And so there's been, yeah. it's been built up to and built up to, we have that, utterly horrifying jump scare earlier where we see the ghost in the bathtub the Mm -hmm. reflection of the ghost in the bathtub right next to her honestly for my money it's the best scare in the movie like it's a really really good one um but yeah there's context around that space that they're in that creates that sense of dread or unpredictability and again with the same sort of um unbalanced that you feel with Harrison Ford's character, Norman, where you don't know what kind of reaction you're going to get from him, where it's like, it could be really bad. It could be loving and understanding. We have that same kind of relationship with the bathroom. Like the movie does a really good job of like, sometimes the bathroom is fine, right? Like sometimes they're in there and they're doing a seance and we think it's going to be scary and the dog is here. Sometimes she's just, there's, there's actually a scene not that long before the climactic bathtub scene where she's just in the bathtub taking a bath and everything's fine, Mm. right? Like the movie does a really good job of imbuing that location with menace, but Uh not so consistently that we feel grounded or like we can really predict what's going to happen. And so it's just a, it's just a really well-designed climactic sequence. Yeah. That we're off balance from we we have the dread that undercurrent of dread, we're already prepped for it, but also we don't feel like we know what's going to happen.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I, it is great for all these reasons. And I think the the thing that was holding it back for me a little bit this time was that it it does all hinge on, a medicine thing that makes you, (laughs) uh, paralyzed Uh for X amount of time. Like just the rules, it's all being enabled by her temporary paralysis around which we don't have any like precise rules. Fair. So it's like, yes, it's cool that she manages to just barely get out of it. But it's also like... The movie decided that around now is when she can pick up her foot. I mean, in fairness, they gave heel. us
2: very precise rules in the science lab when they're, like, talking about the rat. It's too precise for my money. Mm-hmm. They literally say, how long does it last? Oh, about five minutes. You know, they they actually give a Fair. timeline. They say it works on all mammals. You can, you're still awake, but you're paralyzed. So it's, it's cheap because it's, like, designed exactly for the situation. So it doesn't feel... You know earned but i would argue that the movie does give you exactly the parameters in advance sure that's yeah that's fair yeah um
0: cool well why don't we move into lessons and talk about what lessons we're going to take away from what lies beneath is a sentence i just said uh-huh. <laughs> um,
3: uh brian do you want to start us off sure i i didn't get to mention though real quick um Talking about things that this movie on purpose or accidentally stole from, there's also, speaking of ghost stories, the movie Ghost from 10 years earlier, where Sam types onto a computer, Sam, 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 Sam capital letters, three letter, And then in this movie, meF, M-E-F, M-E-F <laughs> on the computer. I was like, wait, I've already seen this. Um in the solitaire game. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, I was reading through the original script a little bit and like the Queen of Hearts in the solitaire game. Like talks and says, "Off with your head!" You lost the game, and the, and I didn't read enough to know if that like it turns into it or thing. <laughs> but I was like, "Oh God, does it?" Because we, we need to read this script. Like, let's do a whole other episode where we actually read the script, <laughs> live reading. <laughs> yeah. Oh, oh my, god, my god, live reading. Oh, um, it can be fun. <laughs> uh, I play Cooper. Um, so I know, but I was just thinking. Like, I'm always fascinated in horror. What scares me because I feel like jump scares are. The the cheapest form of horror. They are effective, um, mm-hmm. but there are sometimes you know if you build up to it too much, then it's not scary. If you don't build up to it at all, then it can be scary. But sometimes it it catches you, catches you so off guard that you're not even scared, but you're like oh I wasn't even paying attention in that moment. Um, and uh, it's the reason I love Haunting of Hill House is because they find these ways where I'm just like no I know it was coming and it still terrified me. Um, so- but I think the the th- The thing I keep coming back to with this movie is uncertainty. Uh, And it's kind of like you were talking about, Michael, with you look down and he's not next to the tub. Where is he? Now I'm uneasy because I don't know the answer. Um, And the other thoughts, the other scenes I was thinking about are the neighbor through the fence, Mm -hmm. where it's not just a jump scare. It's like, okay, if you show me a close up of a fence and a hole in a fence, I know I'm going to see an eye there in a second, right? Like, I (laughs) I don't care if I've seen only three movies in my life. I know that that's going to happen. But then the next two minutes of that scene are just a face on the other side of the fence and you don't know where it is and what's going on. And then it's kind of over here and like, you're just always uneasy because you can't wrap your brain around what is actually happening there. Um, and I think the one that got me the most was when she walks in the house and she there's the stereo is just making it's like playing early dubstep or something, right? Like <laughs> it's so loud. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It just makes this weird sound. And sh- and we get these the second maybe where she looks over and she sees it, but we don't see it yet. So we just hear this crazy sound. Um, there's a scene in Marathon Man where Dustin Hoffman looks off screen and screams and he has like the most loud and like 70s movies were mixed in this very loud way. Um, and I, before you even see what he's looking at, it's so terrifying because you're like, mm-hmm. oh my God, like what is happening here? Um, so yeah, the uncertainty factor I think is really interesting. So when, when a character sees something and you don't know what it is and, and you're not, you can't, that like little moment of unease before you can wrap your head around it. Um, but I think it's that thing where you have to find the right balance so, like, if you see the monster too early, too often in a monster movie, you're like, well, now I'm not scared of it anymore. It's just it's just there. Um, and then some movies try to never show it to you at all. So it's all in your mind. And it's like, well, then now I'm disappointed because, like, <laughs> I don't know. You got to show me the thing. I think, like, Cloverfield did a good version where it's like you see it a couple mm-hmm. times. You get kind of a close up at the end, but you couldn't actually draw it. You couldn't actually say what mm-hmm. it is. So it's always it's still sort of a mystery in your mind. Um And I I just think it's like, it's something I'm talking about horror, obviously, but it's something where that works in, uh, in any sort of aspect of storytelling. I think it's like, if you give too much information, even like Harrison Ford, like the admission of guilt, right. It's like, if you Mm -hmm. do it all at once, then we know, like, we're, we're not interested anymore. It's just like, okay, but if you don't do it at all, right. Like it just suddenly at the end of the movie, he like kills her then it's like wait what like, like the, you didn't set that up at all it, it's in any sort of character with a backstory or a secret or anything you kind of have to find that balance where if you don't do it at all then the audience doesn't lean in and if you do it too much the audience doesn't lean in so you kind of have to like little Little cat with a with a string, you know. Just um, <laughs> right. so I was thinking about it from a horror standpoint, but then I was like, I can ex- actually extract this into just storytelling in general, where uh, where it's just sort of like that that nice balance between too much and too little in terms of the the reveal, I guess. Yeah,
0: yeah, I, I, I like the the example that you gave of um, her at the fence and that crazy scene mm-hmm. um, where. There's yeah just the right balance like you're talking about of imperfect information where you can you can only see a little bit of her face at any time but you know via the context and the right. sounds that you're hearing her performance that she's distressed but not being able to like fully resolve the whole picture in your brain creates this unease that makes you off balance and yeah I think yeah that's a really good uh, I'm gonna carry that metaphor with me moving forward uh-huh. that's the scary weird neighbor that is <laughs> has a very strange relationship
2: yeah. and she's so still unclear on what was actually happening over there
3: yeah <laughs> also miranda, miranda Otto. Otto. yeah yeah eowyn yeah. yeah. <laughs> and joe morton from terminator 2 miles dyson as the yeah, psychiatrist as the psychologist. yeah have a fireball <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah awesome uh cool uh trisha what's your lesson
1: yeah, my lesson has to do... I'm going to return a little bit to the backstory and just how I, I really feel like there's a missed opportunity with it um, to create a, a mystery, like, uh, I don't know, like a, a different sense of mystery at the beginning of the, the film. So, you know, they spend half of the movie building up this, like, red herring with the neighbors. And I think that it's fine, and I, I think that it's it's compelling enough... Um, but part of me wonders if the first half of this movie were more about um, the accident or like her maybe recovering. So like what if we um you know came into the movie six months after the accident and she's still kind of healing you know maybe there's like um, some lingering effects, something physical that we can see um, on her body that we understand that she was like in an accident she's still sort of healing and and like, Maybe that's the reason she stopped playing music, right? Like... So she right. was a, a cellist, and her arm was broken in the accident. and Now she can't play anymore. Okay, great.
2: You just like did a huge thing for this script, uh-huh. <laughs> and like, and he's like directly responsible for that because sh- that's why she got in the car accident. That's uh. what I'm saying. I feel like every time I watch it, I'm I'm expecting that to be the case, but the it's,
0: not, yeah, the it's case. not the she case. She just thing. stopped for it's so other messy. unrelated it's reasons. So messy. Yeah.
1: Um, so, but so her, you know, like she's she she wants to pick her cello back up, and she's like kind of shaking out her arm. It doesn't work the way that it used to. She's really frustrated and sad about that Um, and then she's talking to her friend and like maybe she and her friend both have really incomplete information about what happened the night of the accident or like in the weeks leading up to it and so there's something maybe not quite right about it to her and she's like um, you know having the conversation that she and her friend have at the midpoint uh, like much earlier mm. on where she's like, you know, oh, I saw you like two days before. And what were we talking about? Well, oh, well, we mentioned this like thing that, you know, we were in this I was in this little town. Adamant. The weirdest name for a little.
2: I, oh, my in, God. Inadamant.
0: <laughs> Inadamant. Like Inadamant? my child brain. Yeah. Oh, my yeah. God. It I never understood it.
2: what she was saying. <laughs>
1: I'm, but what if the whole red herring in the first act was not about the neighbors? What if it was about the accident and her poking into it? And then she uncovers something and thinks that she solved it, right? Like, oh, I was, you know, actually what I discovered was it must have been this, like, horrifying truth about, I don't know, something to do with the orchestra she was playing with or, or something else. Or, you know, that's what leads to the confession from her husband that he had had an affair, So what if she finds out about the affair halfway through? And then we think, oh, the the creepiness is over. Maybe the ghost story is over. And maybe all of that was part of the psychological unease. And then the second half becomes like, no, the ghost is real. Maybe that kind of thing. And so I just feel like, again, wanting to streamline both halves of what this is. And I do appreciate that the neighbor's create you know sort of like that um the clones that we talked about where it's like Mm. they have marital problems just Mm -hmm. like we do kind of a thing they have loud
2: sex just like we do
1: (laughs) but it just ends up going (laughs) the the neighbors as clones thematically ends up going completely nowhere whereas i feel like if you could either tie the neighbors thematically more directly into what happens with her and norman or if you could make the mystery in the first half Something more about the accident, again, parse like help us put a timeline together of what happened last year with the accident. And then we kind of figure out, no, there's this whole other side of it that we think we solved it, but we didn't solve it. And it's way worse than we ever could have imagined. And make that sort of be the midpoint hinge and, and then go on from there into the second act. Um, I just feel like it would be a lot neater and the raw material is all here. Uh, it just gets really muddy the way that it's put together now. Um, not that it's not still very enjoyable, but
2: <laughs> the lesson is hire Trisha for your rewrite because, no. <laughs> like, I want to see that movie.
1: <laughs> or hire me to work with Clark Gregg. I feel like he'd be a fun person to work with.
0: Yeah, I could see that. We should have him on the podcast, Clark. If you're listening, <laughs> hit us up. We'd love to have we him love him on your the podcast. movies.
2: <laughs> <laughs> it inspired us. <laughs> Strangely. It's really true. Awesome. Well, Alex, what's your lesson then? Um, I kind of talked about this earlier with Harrison's for Harrison Ford's character having these flashes of menace throughout the movie. It's part of almost what Brian was saying, where it's like you want some anticipation of the bad thing, but not too much. And I, I think there's some really key moments I picked up on this time where, you know, they can be read as just marital tensions or soft spots and like, like she says Norman you're so sensitive and the way he looks at her and says I'll have to work on that won't I it, it, mm-hmm. it's very much there's something else there that's not just oh I'm I'm sensitive right now it's like I have a darkness in me and you know if you poke this part of me it could get scary mm-hmm. and so I just really appreciate the effort both in the writing and and Harrison Ford's performance to to both give us the you know yeah like sexy dad husband. And like, you know, he's, he's able to, he's able to, you know, be, be like, you know, super horny husband in the first parts of the movie. Uh, but then he's also is able to be this kind of threatening, not always supportive, uh, maybe yeah gaslighting her sort of figure. And so that when it does make that turn into like actual sociopath, We've had this trail of breadcrumbs cr- the whole time. That's like, oh, wait a minute. There's red flags, yeah. left and right here. So
1: many, yeah. And it, and it, and once it
2: adds up, you're like, oh, this kind of makes sense. Like
3: it makes sense that he's been lying. He's been gaslighting her. Yeah, yeah. It, it's something I mentioned with Matt Damon in The Departed. Where it's like they're they're mm. they're putting those red flags, and it's like if you've seen the movie, you're like, oh, look at what a what a dick he is. But if you haven't, it's like, oh, maybe they're just setting up some conflict. They're setting up some flaws that he has to kind of resolve, you know. And it's sort of it's those little things that could go either way uh, until you mm-hmm. know, obviously, where they're going. Yeah.
2: So yeah, yeah, I think it's actually it's it's a more sophisticated uh, character than I think I registered when I was younger, you know, as far as the the breadcrumbs that lead you all the way towards. Evil sociopath killer, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. I do feel like that is one of the like
0: successes of this movie is mm. how they balance that part of it for sure. Um, yeah, my lesson is uh, a directorial one, and we've talked about wonders a lot on the podcast. So many good wonders. Mm-hmm. There's so many good ones in this one, and they're the kind that don't annoy me because sometimes I can get annoyed when the movie is like, stop everything. Audience, look, we're doing a one Are yeah. you paying attention? Like, things that draw your attention too much can annoy me. Um, and there are some of those in in this. Not, not you know, so ostentatious, but, you know, there's when she's just emptied the bathtub and then she kind of walks around Folding the room. da 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 Right. And then I get around and I open the door and the bathtub's been filled again. And it's, like, steaming hot because... That's one of the ghost's powers. (laughs) Um, Instant
2: bathtub refills. Yeah. yeah, Worst superhero ever.
0: (laughs) (laughs) It's like that and knocking pictures over is just what she spends her time doing.
1: Opening the front door.
0: Right, opening the front door. She's good at that. Um, uh, But there are also so many uh, long takes in just conversation scenes and dialogue scenes between Mm. characters. Like when the friend comes over, it's a long take of her sitting next to Michelle Pfeiffer and they talk and it plays out over, you know, 60 seconds in this one shot. One of my favorite ones is the dinner scene where mm-hmm. Michelle Pfeiffer yeah. and her go out and like, mm-hmm. yeah, there's... The cross table talk. Yeah. yeah, I looked that
3: up in the script and it's literally that thing where there's two columns and they just have oh, both nice. sets of dialogue, yeah.
0: yeah. Yeah, so there's this overlapping dialogue. It's all being played in this one long take and it gives it grounds the movie as much as I think this movie can be grounded. Mm-hmm. It makes it feel, you know, I think you can only do this with really great actors, but it feels real and authentic and you kind of buy, and it makes you lean in a little bit. It creates tension because you're not cutting. So I feel like it's doing all these things that are really useful in this story and in this genre. Uh, and it's also just like really nice to see multiple actors in a frame together this is actually one of the weird insights that I've gotten from like doing lessons from the screenplay and editing the videos and all this stuff over like five years is like so many times. And Alex, you, you edited a lot of them and we've talked about this, but like so many times we're saying something in the script and I just want to be able to show both characters at once in a frame, but it's always just shot reverse shot. Like mm-hmm. so many movies never actually show multiple characters on screen at the same time and let them have a scene. So I really appreciate that this movie goes for uh, winners even in these dialogue scenes because it accomplishes so much and I think it's what helps elevate the movie in many ways.
1: I really love the moment in that scene too where Harrison Ford puts her on the spot. The and look, she like, gives him, uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. The look she gives him, it's really good. Where he's like, I'm just gonna air all of our dirty laundry about this ghost and like this thing that is really deep and really right. secret and just say it at dinner. It's like a really right. good moment.
2: It's such a real moment, you know. It's, yeah, it's, that, it is. it's that like awful couple moment where it's just, when your partner yeah. says
1: something and you're just like, Hang on, yeah,
2: right. Speaking of <laughs> partners, just I want to just before we wrap up, <laughs> my husband was walking in and out of this movie, uh, the other night and. You know, watching for parts of it. And I think he saw it back in like 2000, but had forgotten everything. And at one point, he just blurted out this is a sexist movie about a wife with nothing better to do than to lollygag around the house. <laughs> I was like, I mean, I can't argue with that description. <laughs> A lot of, yeah,
0: the, like, the tension or, like, there's a lot of, like, ugh, like, women left at home with nothing (laughs) to do, like, getting up into trouble. Like, that's a lot of, like, the conflict coming in in the first half, anyway.
1: But if it were better, like, established that she was kind of forced into that by the backstory where it's, like, he derailed her career advertently or inadvertently to, like, advance his own career, which is kind of how I read it, right? It's a part of the gaslighting thing. So right.
2: Yeah, and, and I think I think it is valid to tell a story about. I mean, there are plenty of people who just are at home all day and feel like they're going crazy. That is an mm. American thing. That is the suburbs. <laughs> you know, we've been exploring that in a lot of our films, and so I think it's a it's a real phenomenon that is worth exploring. But I thought it was just hilarious. It's like, what is she doing? She's just yeah. she's just walking around the house again.
1: Yeah.
2: It's also why it
0: feels like a very, you know, 2000s movie right. of like, you know, American Beauty on either
2: side of just like, ah, yeah, yeah, yeah. suburbia. It's so what hard. A yeah. Right. Yeah, <laughs> this yeah. Beautiful like expansive house for two people on a lake. Yeah. Right.
1: Another example of how dangerous roses are. the cut she gets from that rose bush i'm sorry is so deep and intense
2: it's like on her wrist and everything yeah Mm -hmm. right and
0: she she gets cut like you were saying so many times on so many things she just walks around getting cut on things (laughs) and like it usually leads to a clue but so is the ghost making. i don't just the ghost is many ways the ghost rules are yeah um awesome what have you guys been watching Brian, what have you been watching?
3: Uh, I finally, after much procrastinating, caught up on the second season of Atlanta, uh, mm. which is the show created by Donald Glover, uh, which stars Donald Glover, Brian Tyree Henry, uh, who you may know from uh, Beale Street, and the upcoming Eternals movie, Lakeith Stanfield, who you know from everything lately, mm-hmm. um, right. and Zazie Beetz, who is awesome. They've all just like had these great careers since uh, the show took off. Um, the story behind this show is that Donald Glover sold it as the Black Entourage because he his character Ern is managing his cousin, uh, who is a, a rapper who goes by Paperboy and has had like some success is like, you know, recognized in town. And then once the show got picked up, he's like, yeah, I'm just going to do whatever I want. Uh, so <laughs> the show is like you are. Generally speaking, you are following these characters in a linear story that plays out over the course of a season, but so many of the episodes are just a standalone idea that sometimes only focuses on one character where they're the only character in the episode or like the other characters are just like in one little side scene or something. And it's just like, what if this character got lost in the woods while having an identity crisis? And that's the episode, (laughs) right? (laughs) What if uh, Lakeith Stanfield goes to a mansion to get a piano and he has to deal with this like crazy eccentric white question mark person who lives there, who is actually Donald Glover in the most bizarre makeup ever. Look up Google Teddy Perkins. If you want to know what I'm talking about, it is unbelievable. Um, so yeah, it's a total trip. It's, you never know what you're going to get from episode to episode, but it's just smart. <laughs> it's entertaining. <laughs> I'm Michael watching, right I'm now. watching the look at everyone's faces <laughs> as they're Googling Teddy Perkins. Um, <laughs> so yeah, I, uh, and, uh, the, it's been three years since the season, but we are finally getting season three, uh, I think early next year. So it is a good time to check out the show or catch up if you uh, haven't. And yeah, it's just, it's such a weird show because it's not one of those shows where you can be like, oh, I know what I'm going to, I know what I'm in for when I'm watching the next episode. It's like, I have no idea what I'm in for, but I'm excited. <laughs> Nice. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. I I need to go
0: back and and watch it again. I think I went into it expecting too much of a normal show. Right. Now that I know more of what it is, I think I would like it a lot more. Trisha, what have
1: you been watching? Yep. So I caught uh, a movie. (laughs) I caught an indie movie um, from 2010 called Please Give, uh, which is Mm. written and directed by Nicole Hollifcenter. And I. I really, really liked it. It's got um, Oliver Platt and a, a whole lot of other people. Let me, like, pull up the list. Yeah, so it's uh, one of our favorites ever, Rebecca Hall, Catherine Keener, um, Elise Ivy, who's really great in it, Amanda Peet is really great in it, uh, Paul Sparks, who I really like in, like, a small role, Lois Smith, who's one of the greatest ever. Um, it, it's just a really great little comedy. And, you know for whatever reason it, it resonated with me it's sort of just like an indie movie from around that time that i feel like a lot of those movies are which is just like here are people who are doing okay mostly and uh they also have some problems and and like
3: that <laughs> right
1: <laughs> that's what all of those movies are and that's exactly what this is uh you know Catherine Keener's married to Oliver Platt and they have a, a teenage daughter and they're um They're, like, furniture dealers in Manhattan, and they buy furniture from the estates of of dead people. And they also own the apartment that's next door to theirs. They bought it out from under their elderly neighbor with the idea that once she dies, they're going to, like bump out and, like, expand their apartment into what is going to be, you know, what was her apartment. So they're very... They already own it. They've already bought it from her, so they're just transparently waiting for her to die. Um, and Rebecca Hall plays her granddaughter. And uh, anyway, it, it is just, like... It's an example of, like, one of those comedies that's sort of poignant, or I guess, like, dramedy is sort of more of an accurate mm. uh, a genre description for it. Um, but for whatever reason, it, I, I don't know, I just really liked it. Catherine Keener is really great in it. And as she is in everything all the time. And um, she just feels really sad about a lot of things. Like she she sort of is filled with loathing for herself, for waiting for this elderly woman to die, for dealing furniture at exorbitantly high prices in Manhattan. Um, And no one else around her feels guilty about her existence, but she feels very guilty about it. I don't know. It's just it's just like a poignant little uh, little dramedy, and I really enjoyed it. So definitely recommend. Please give from twenty ten.
3: I say, yeah, I was looking it up, and, and Nicole Hollis Center. I was like, oh, what, why do I know that name? And uh, yeah, enough said. Oh yeah, she's friends wonderful. with money, and then friends she, with money,
1: which I really like.
3: She co wrote the last duel with with Ben and Matt. So mm-hmm. she is, oh. she's she's current, which
1: I haven't <laughs> seen yet. So yeah,
3: it's no. so good. Okay,
1: <laughs> <laughs> is that way Is that your what you're watching, Alex?
3: That was his last week. That was last oh, week. Oh, yeah. that's right. Trisha doesn't listen. Wow. <laughs> um, awesome. Cool. Well, Alex, what is your
2: watching this week? <laughs> <laughs> I is watching <laughs> uh, the new season of Succession, ah. uh, which is just better than ever. My God, like the writers on this show are brilliant. The act, the whole cast is brilliant. It's some of the most sharp witty like perfect satire of like this elite fam like wealthy elite family you know media mogul played by brian cox and all of his like awful kids it's just the most if you want to just watch like a a single episode of television that just feels so tight and so well written from start to finish watch the first episode of this season season three Mm. i was just blown away i'm like wow this this show is up there and one of the best This is the best writing I'm seeing on TV right now. So I can't recommend Succession enough. Uh, You know, there's there's some ups and downs in seasons one and two. I I wasn't always this thrilled with it. But season three so far has gotten off to an amazing start. And I just, it's just deliciously, wonderfully fun. So check it out.
0: Nice. Yeah, I've been meaning to. I'm Maybe now that there's a third season, I'll do a big binge catch up and follow the third season. Awesome. I have been watching foundation the Ah. apple tv plus series and so have all of you (laughs) we are now eight episodes in to our what we're watching uh of yes so foundation apple tv plus series based on the books by isaac asimov it has been a very interesting ride there's only two episodes left we're going to see how it ends uh but if you want to go on this crazy journey with us there are some uh I, I feel like we've had fun talking about the do's and don'ts and the challenges that have come with adapting this material some notes that i've made that i think our highlights are like why doesn't lee pace have a belly button they still say <laughs> hard pass in thousands of years as well as oh, ride yeah. shotgun uh-huh. i do not want to see apple tv sex scenes very pretty episode why would their typeface be like this and a character yelling, <laughs> I hate the math. So <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's a really valid note about the typeface, though.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it's such a hard typeface. Uh, but it, yeah, it's been a, a really crazy ride. We're almost at the end. So if you are watching or care to watch and catch up, we have episodes for each episode of the series over on our Patreon for the $5 and up tier. So that's what I've been watching, and we're almost there.
1: God bless us. (laughs) God bless us.
0: And this has been our conversation about What Lies Beneath. We did it, guys. Wow. Um, I never thought we'd be here.
1: It's a very long time coming.
0: Yes. I guess we can stop talking about it now. Never. Never. We want to say a big thank you, as always, to the patrons <laughs> that make this show possible. Thank you to our producer, Vince Major. I'm Michael Tucker, and I've been joined today by Trisha Rand, Brian Bittner, and Alex Cayaros. All of our Twitter handles are in the show notes. Send us a tweet and say how much you love what lies beneath. And we will see you in the next episode. Bye, everybody. Bye-bye. Bye.
2: bye. bye.